Welcome back to another week in the wonderful world of SaaS. This is the official SaaS to podcast with your host, Harry Stebbings of the 20 Minute VC. And for new listeners to the show, this is the podcast that takes you inside the world of SaaS to reveal the tips, tactics and strategies of the best operators and investors in SaaS. Therefore, joining me today, I'm thrilled to welcome Russell Fujioka. Now, where do I start with Russ's immense career? He's currently the US president of the world's fastest growing SaaS startup, Zero, and he has had over 25 years experience in the SaaS industry, including holding incredible positions such as global vice president of marketing at Dell and holding senior roles at Bessemer Venture Partners, J. Walter Thompson and Adobe Systems. But before we dive into the interview with Russ today, if you're loving the show, then please do leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe to the show. It really does make a huge difference and we would be so grateful. But enough from me. So without further ado, I'm delighted to welcome Russ Fujioka, US President at Zero. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Russ, thanks so much for joining us today. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Harry, I'm glad to see you in San Francisco. Well, thank you for having us here at Zero's offices. And I'd love to kick off today by, by hearing a little about you. And, and when you look at the resume, there's Dell, Bessemer, Adobe, all these amazing companies. But where did it all start off for you? Well, you know, Harry, I'm a unique individual in that uh, a rare find that I was born and raised in the Silicon Valley. So when I was born and raised, it was actually the Silicon Valley. So, so you, if you didn't start in semiconductors, you, there wasn't a whole bunch else to, to do except stick them in mainframes at the time. So, so I started in, in semiconductors in the Valley and, and proceeded to realize that, you know, the really interesting things were going on in software. And so I very rapidly went from really semiconductors into software. And that was, a, you know, an eight year stint with Adobe which was an incredible uh, experience. As I think I was telling you before, it's, uh, you know, it was eight years of education. I mean, you want to talk about postgraduate education, eight years at Adobe with the founders, John and Chuck were incredible. And I, I do want to latch onto that because we did just chat earlier and you said 40 million to a billion with Adobe. Now, obviously, unbelievable journey. What were the, the biggest takeaways from that experience? What were the key determinants for the success, do you think, of Adobe in that trajectory period? Well, I think Adobe, you know, is, is and always has been a great product company. I mean, has great vision, looks at the things before, before they're there. They set trends, they dislocate uh, markets. So, you know, the core product at Adobe initially was something called PostScript, which was a page description language, which was basically helping and accelerating this publishing, this desktop publishing industry. And at the time, they said, you know, had Adobe and Apple and Aldis at the time not come together, every company, all three of that triumvirate would have failed. But we, we did basically make the desktop publishing industry. And so when you talk about, well, what does that mean? We dislocated an entire industry in publishing. So, um, you know, going from typesetting and lead type to being able to do all of this stuff electronically and WYSIWYG. At the time, I don't know, Harry. I don't know if you're old enough to understand those. I didn't old, know WYSIWYG. Those great. The, see, WYSIWYG. What you see is what you get. Now you guys just assume that what you see is what you get. Back then, it was not that way. Okay. So, so, so the Mac was an incredible uh, invention because it was totally on these uh, basically user interfaces were, that were what you see is what you get versus 
having to kind of write code. So it was much like today where you might write HTML and, and raw HTML. That would have been your word processor or your page layout. You'd have to write codes. But that easy desktop publishing along with Adobe's page description language let you print out from a 300 dot per inch printer all the way to a, you know, 2400, 5000 line uh, publishing typesetter. And Eldest was a page uh, uh, makeup software. So it was, we dislocated that entire industry. We made um, what publishing was change. So if people fundamentally changed the way they did business, they made publishing more affordable to more people. They basically democratized that publishing industry, right? So you talk about that dislocation, then you talk about, you know, at the time, really no one understood what a typeface was. You know, what a font was right now again it's common nomenclature you have to remember it back in those days that was just something unique no one would understand what a font or a typeface is let alone the artistry behind it and adobe was very much behind using original artists licensing those typefaces and and again being very professional in the publishing and then of course along the way you look at the other dislocations that we made photoshop Right. And I will tell you that, you know, having seen the initial presentation on Photoshop to Adobe, it helped me learn a couple things. It helped me learn very quickly what Moore's Law was and that it actually happens, it will happen forever, which is that ability for technology to multiply at a, at a rate much faster than you're looking at. And so what I mean by that is when we looked at Photoshop initially, it took so much hardware and software that as young executives at Adobe, we looked at it and went, oh my God, you know, we're not going to be able to sell, you know, but a couple of these things because it it's taken a wall of, uh, of, uh, equipment. What it was displacing was a million dollar Cytex machine though. We, we obviously went in and we, we acquired uh, the company that the two brothers that had built Photoshop and we recoded and we, we got the thing to market and it sold, you know, to the professional folks. And, and then, you know, you look at Photoshop today and it, it's like, you know, it's like saying, you know, it's a generic now. So if someone's Photoshopped, you kind of you it's get what that means yeah. now, right? Back then, we were scratching our heads figuring out how we were going to sell one of them, and, and, and you know, it became a multi-billion-dollar uh, franchise for Adobe. And again, dislocated entire industry. Digital photography came out of that. Um, you 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 would be hard pressed to find a Cytex machine today. So, so, so is that democratization of publishing and a revolutionary new approach to an industry? Is that the reason for the categoric scale shifting from forty to a billion? Or was it the great founding team and their vision and ability to execute? Was it the combination of them both? So I think it's both, right? So I think that if you if you have a visionary without the ability to deliver on that vision, then you're really just a thought leadership person, and you should just um, you know you, your your dreams may not really reach fruition. I think what you find was it was constant innovation, right? And and in that environment, it wasn't. Um, something where you said, hey, we have to be constantly innovative. It's, we just were. It was like, hey, you need to create a good culture. We just did. You know, it was nothing that you, you know, the things that happened at Adobe, John or Chuck never sat on a podium and said, this is our culture. This is what we do. We just did it. They emoted it. We followed it. We hired down that path. And so having people with the common DNA and, and, and building these companies and having the idea of what you did well, right? I to this day understood very quickly that I would never think like John Warnock. Um, I also knew very quickly that I could help a company accelerate into 
their, you know, what they needed to do. Um, so I, I do what I do well. John will always think the way he thinks. And as you look at Adobe today, as they've gone, you know, they've made the leap over these things, right? They've made it, the things that they caused, you know, they've leapt into the digital world. They've leapt into the web world. They basically had reinvented what was publishing and then publishing went away because now we have, you know, this little thing called the internet and, and, and they're still successful because they constantly innovate. So it was a great, great time there and I think the you know the core thing that I learned there was I really did enjoy and and get really my energy from from founders right so I had, I founded a company on my own I've worked primarily with founders even in my uh, time with Dell Michael Dell is still at the helm there that is a founder led company it has the same culture that you'd feel in in a company of 200 uh we had 120,000 but um, you know there's uh, you get that same feel out of founder led companies so what is it about founder led companies is it the vision that the founder brings because you know some non founder led companies do still do still have a vision with the CEO and still have a very much mission led thesis. So, so what is it that the founder themselves bring that entices you? Yeah, so I would say that, you know, I've, I've really said that the, you know, beware of a mission led company is really hard to stop because the passion that's involved in that company is beyond uh, the sales cycle. It's beyond all of the, the different gyrations of running the business. It is really fundamentally built around the why you come to work. Right. And I think that in founder led companies, you'll continue to get that. So whether you look back at how Steve Jobs ran his companies that he had run, or you look at how Elon Musk runs multiple companies, these innovators and these founders really will be successful on delivering their, their vision. You know, beware of companies on a mission. And for companies that are trying to build a mission into a company via a slide, very hard to do. So, you know, there you can feel the difference between a naturally led, mission-led company, founder-based company, and ones that are adopting some protocol that believes that they have to have start off with their mission slide. So they actually name it mission slide. And, and you know, uh, we, we hopefully get to companies that are more like uh, how John and Chuck ran Adobe, which was they really never had to talk about culture or, or mission. We just felt it and we did it. And you mentioned that you foresaw the, the shift uh, to software, particularly in the early days. Um, so when you look back now and look back at the entire career and all the incredible companies that you've worked with, how's the software industry itself transitioned uh, and particularly the, the SaaS industry? So, you know, look, I, I think the, the SaaS industry is, uh, you know, I think we look at SaaS and cloud and a lot of these things and they kind of start melding between, you know, categorization, right? So when you look at SaaS and they, you know, really kind of denotes a business model and cloud basically denotes some idea of not having the actual data or operation in front of you or, or, or local to you in some way, I think when you look at those things, when I look at the the application part or the software part of the business, I think, you know, what you saw initially was the ability to look at, did I need to have all of my compute resources local to me? You know, when we look at that early on, there was a model called an ASP model. You know, when people say, where did you start in SaaS? Well, the ASP model was kind of the predecessor to SaaS. It wasn't multi-tenant, but it was the ability to put your your ERP system or your software on someone else's hardware, and then access it directly into your company. So uh, Salesforce uh, was basically built around 
you know, a bit more of that ASP model in the day. And I know this because I was working with the competitor Siebel Systems. Okay. So at Siebel Systems, we were developing sales.com, which was going to be a competitor to Salesforce. But the model then was an ASP model. And then it shifted into, you know, over time into this cloud and the SaaS model. And we've gone from private cloud to public cloud and everything in between. But what I think you saw was this idea of taking resident type of uh, applications and sticking them somewhere outside of your hardware. And then you would see applications that their sole mission was just to get them to the cloud. And we still see this today. Some of my competitors still have this model where they're actually just trying to take a piece of desktop software and stick it into the public cloud and then have you pay for it by the glass and they've really not re-engineered the user interface or the user experience. I think the biggest thing that you've seen with SaaS companies today, and I'll use it as a category, is that more important than just the application that you're providing, it's how that application works for the customer and between its data sets. One of the things was, again, if I make a office product and I bring the office product into the cloud, I sell it on a per month basis, I, I have a SaaS cloud office product. If I build that solely there, you really doing a model that might as well be shrink wrap. Because you've not really not done anything to that because you, there, there's, you're having to go in and out of that, right? So you're going in and out of that just like you would if you loaded a, a word processor on your computer. Mm-hmm. What's really important is that I get to work in a single pane of glass and be able to run my business on that. So if you look at, for instance, I look at Zero Today, I look at Shopify, I look at MindBody, I look at Clio, I look at all of these companies that are cloud SaaS companies, and we sit there as this small business platform, the ability to run your quote-unquote front office to your back office is really easy today. Not only is it easy to integrate that data set, it's really cheap. I mean, the reality is is I we can spin up a Shopify e-commerce store with full compliant accounting on the back end with, with zero, and you're not going to spend more than $50 a month. I mean, it's insane, right? I mean, we still sell, you know, in, in the hardware business today, you're still selling multiple million dollar deals for data centers, for servers. And, you know, these small businesses today can put more robust, more flexible, more agile solutions out there in the market. And their commitment is a 30-day commitment, and they're paying you $50 in total between your front office and your back office. And they're running law firms. You know, they're running full law firms compliant. They're have, you know, they're inviting in their accountants and they're able to do all of this stuff really seamlessly. That is, you know, that I think is the magic of, of SaaS. So you, t- we, we talked about this democratization of publishing, the democratization of things. And if you look at, you know, zero waking up every day to make small businesses more successful, these integrations with not only the ability for our accounting partners to be a partner with you inside of the application, but your ability to tie in those front office things like a point of sale or a reservation system or a management tool system, and to be able to do that all pretty seamlessly uh, and very quickly is made the cost of entry very low and the, the you know percentage of success very high. So you're you're not really set back there and going, well, I wish I could grow up and I could use this. There's a lot of companies today that are actually major companies on old ERP software that goes, I wish I could be like them. 
right? It's like, I wish I could go back to the day that, that my user interface looked like Vend, that my user interface looked like Zero. But there's, you know, they're Fortune 1000 companies and they're stuck in some old ERP system and they look today because they're consumers also, right? So when they're at home, maybe they have their own business and they're, they're working in these, these tools today that are incredible. And talking about competing against zero, how, how's the land grab going against the competitors in, in the US and the Americas in particular? You know, you've got some stiff competition. Uh, so how's that gone and, and where are we looking for the future? So for zero, there has been no uh, no country with a bigger incumbent than in the United States. And you know that said, the United States has a very unique small business environment. And so we have a total available market that makes every financial person, every startup's mouth water because there's 30 million small businesses. So when you look at 30 million of anything, you're like, wow, you know, I just need to sell this to this many. Well, it's hard. If it was easy. Everyone would be doing it, and, and, and it's not easy. Do you break it down to that? Do you break it down to if I get 10% of the market, we've got X? Or do you take a much more holistic, broader view? Well, so I, I think we start with the holistic uh, view, and then we it's really important to run a business that you get really focused. So what you want to do if you want to be successful is you want to take that $30 million, uh, $30 million user C and really put it into bite-sized proportions. And which one you can help earlier, you get really into a lot of consumer-esque marketing, right? So we take that 30 million and we look at, well, there's 10 million of them that would uh, be able to use a, a an accounting platform. The rest of them in the United States tend to be kind of hobbyist businesses or they, you know, they might do a consulting thing one time in the year and they'll get counted as a small business. So kind of true operational small businesses, there's 10 million. The, the biggest thing about that is the other thing is it's not a static business. So the other really interesting number is that there's 540,000 of these new every month in the United States. And so you look at it and you go, wow, that math is just, I mean, just, it doesn't work. It doesn't in the sense that you just have to understand what's in that number, right? So that 540,000 show up every uh, month, 540,000 also decategorize from that. And what I mean by decategorize that, because I don't want to say that 540,000 businesses go out of business. They don't, they just don't consult that next year. Or they don't do so. So they drop off their category. But if we take that earlier proportion and say a third of it, so you'd say 150,000 every month would need an accounting platform. There's so much greenfield that as big as an incumbent can be, we look at the United States and when we actually kind of parse through the numbers, there are really only 17% of small businesses that could utilize an accounting platform today that use an accounting platform of any type. Um, again, because of these unique dynamics, it means there's always this, this white space of customers that are available. They're always new. And remember, when you start a business, what better time to be aspirational? This is the time you fit very much into the zero mentality. We are an aspirational company. When, again, you're signing up, be a new customer, and you're, you're one of those 150,000 that you're, you're coming into the United States uh, every month. It just says that this market is always up for grabs. There's no complacency in this market. So do you think it is a winner-takes-all market? or a- Absolutely not. This is not a zero-sum game in the United States. And that's one thing to be really absolutely clear on. Intuit has been selling software in small business for 30 years in the United States. You know, as I said, there's about 70% of this market covered. So yeah, we've been here about three years. 
And if you look at all the other people that have tried, and 70% of this market's covered, it tells you that for two companies to have 10% of that market are still really huge businesses. And you still would have 70% of the market available. Absolutely not a winner take all. And I'd love to dive into a, a quick fire, which is a 60 second Sasta round. Let's start off with the biggest challenge in your role now today. Uh, with any company, it's it's people. Hiring, retaining, inspiring. People will always be in a company that your main assets literally drive home or take a train home every day is what you have to concentrate on. What SaaS company that you haven't worked for do you most uh, admire in terms of growth and trajectory? Well, I, I mean, I think I have to look at Salesforce, right? I mean, huge staying power. They've built an ecosystem. I think uh, Mark has has led that company really well from a mission based company. I you know I love the way that you know he integrates the the vision of Salesforce with with his own personal philanthropy. Um, I, I think he's done a great job building that company again, starting from a place where you know it was not you know quite a SaaS company, and today I think he'd be looked at as kind of the quintessential. Uh, longest living SaaS company, right? What would be your biggest advice then to SaaS founders? Um, ask questions. Um, don't uh, don't try to do this thing alone. There are a lot of smart people, and you should listen to a lot of smart people. Mm-hmm. And and then for you, what's your kind of favorite reading resource? Is it a book, a blog, uh, or it doesn't have to be reading? It could be it could be a podcast. It will be this podcast. Obviously, absolutely. Very well said. Um, and you must get zero two after this show. <laughs> but, but what's your favorite? I will tell you that I read almost everything. And I'll tell you how my source is for that, though. I choose very um, specifically the people I follow on Twitter. Okay. This, the reason uh, I say I read everything is because from a real-time basis – the amount of information you garner from that is, you know, you're being linked into really all of the real time stories, right? You know, I look at tech, tech crunch. I enjoy looking at the, the tech, tech crunch unicorn lists and things like that just to see who's on top and, and, and how things are changing. And I love seeing uh, the ones that are on, the ones that are off and the valuation changes. And it's just, it's an incredible um, category to be in. And it's, you know, we, it's just fun to watch. Now, moving away from 60 seconds faster and moving to slightly for you longer form, I wanted to dive into, obviously one of my passions is is the funding process and VC. Um, and so I'd love to ask you about your time at Bessemer and, and how that uh, has shaped and informed your role as an operator uh, and how that lends to your career now at Zero. So the, the role at Bessemer was as an executive in residence. And, you know, one of the great things I've been associated and worked with uh, some of the folks there for, for years. You know, the great thing about that is when you get into a venture role like that uh, in the position I was in, you know, one of the biggest learnings is that you, you really do get to see how the sausage is made, right? So you get to see the internal workings of how deals are evaluated, what you're looking for, what are the most important things. These processes that I just alluded to are the intellectual property of those VCs. I would detail how they look at it, but it is actually how that is their intellectual property is how they evaluate these things. Tell you that I learned from there is that Venture capital has become very broad. Venture capital used to be pretty narrow. There used to be here, Sand Hill Road, and there was a few firms and that would, but you know, the venture funding is coming out of everywhere now. There are foundations, there are corporations, there are private equity funds, and they all have their own various different ways to go at it. 
So what I would say that I've learned is that when you're a, a founder and you're deciding that you need to do a round of funding, that you need capital to grow, that you be very specific on what you're looking for outside of that money. I will tell you that Bessemer as a SaaS investor and across their portfolio is one of the best you could partner with. And why is that? What makes a great investor in SaaS? So first of all, I think Bessemer looks at the deals really well holistically, right? There's not, you know, they have a model that they go through. They also have a set of folks that are willing to get in as deep with you as you want operationally or or back away as far as you want, but they are always helpful in the way that whether that is is connections or educations or mentors or I mean they will do what they can to make you successful. They are not your quarterly call and look for the paper to see what it looks like, right? We have great investors here. Peter Thiel, right? Matrix, Excel, you know, the the people that have invested in zero Again, you know, we love these investors. We love their horizons. We love how they think. You can get funded in companies that maybe aren't adjacent to your your uh, mission or or what you're trying to do. And so, the only thing I would say is that you know you should always be planning for your funding ahead of time. And when you're planning for your funding, you know, keep an idea of what you're really what you're really looking for in a partner because these are really what you want. And I'd like to finish by by talking about the future now and hearing about the next kind of five ten year vision for you and for Zero. Well, where are we looking? What's the landscape? Wow, five to ten years. Well, you know, like I said, I think some of the things that we're working on today that look like you know the aspirational things um, are just going to be commonplace and they'll be historically commonplace. I think that the financial web, as we look at that, will you know the connecting between uh, small business and bank and consumer and and all of these uh, pieces of available funding and growth and assets are all going to be interlinked together. You're going to see marketplaces that you can come in and out of that are just really, really, really transitory. It's going to be really easy to not only go between uh, financial institutions and, and software and data, but it's going to be really easy to go across internationally. The ease of use of the uh, you know, of someone like zero. So you take zero and you take Shopify, um, the ability to transact commerce around the world immediately is real time today. So imagine that becomes commonplace. Imagine that workforces become uh, more and more of a demand workforce and really not governed by uh, not only state line in the U.S., but international line. Um, I think you're going to see a really international in 10 years. I think that's the biggest thing. I think you're just going to see the market will become so international and so homogeneous that, you know, working in and around a, a U.S. market, quote unquote, or an Australian market is there's going to be a different look to that. Well, Russ, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. It's been an absolute pleasure having you. Oh, this was awesome. Love it. And hopefully we'll give you another set of weather in San Francisco. <laughs> 
And I'd like to say a huge thank you to Russ and the entire Zero team for giving up their time today to be on the show and for helping to organise it. We really are so grateful. And if you're loving the official Sasta podcast, then please do leave a review on iTunes. It makes a huge difference and we'd be so grateful. Also, if you want to get every episode, don't forget to subscribe and it will download automatically for you. You can also find all the content from today's show and all SaaS related news and topics from hiring to scaling to traction on sasta.com by the incredible Jason Lempkin. Thank you so much as always for listening to today's show and we look very forward to bringing you our next show on Thursday.